Let's invite the Lord into our presence together. Almighty God, it's true that you've said we can do nothing without you. And so this morning we invite you to come into our midst, to speak through this frail vessel that is before you, to work in each one of our hearts. Lord, you know the needs and you alone can touch and speak to us and inspire us and help us to be free from the things that hold us captive, to, to truly reflect your character and to find the joy, the abundant joy that you've come to give us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. For a meditation this morning, let's turn to the last book of the Bible, Revelations of, of John, to the second chapter, Revelations chapter 2. A few weeks ago, we, we looked at the introduction of, of John as he uh, was banished to the Isle of Patmos and was received a vision of, of the risen, glorified Jesus in a message to the seven churches in, in modern-day Turkey in Asia Minor. So as we begin reading in chapter 2, he writes, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Jesus himself... appeared to John as he was uh, being exiled. He was a uh, political prisoner or 
maybe a, a religious conscience, he was exiled to a small island in the Adriatic. And he was worshiping on the Lord's Day. It's clear at this time that they had already moved the day of worship from the Sabbath to the Lord's Day, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, the Sunday that we worship still today, when he saw this incredible vision of Jesus himself. And so, it's a shame we use the word awesome for such trivial things these days because we lose the sense of, of being full of awe that seeing Jesus inspired of such awe, he could not even stand. He fell on his face. And Jesus appeared to him to give him a message to the seven churches. He referred to a church as, we, as a candlestick, as something that would hold light for that area. And now we read the details of the first church he wrote to, which was under the church of Ephesus. Now, it's interesting that Ephesus was John's home church. John actually, from what we can read from extra-biblical sources, that was where he had brought Mary, the mother of Jesus. Remember, he was entrusted with the, the mother of Jesus on the cross, and he brought her there to Ephesus. And that was his home church, and that's what he, um, Jesus was speaking these words. In most of the messages he has to, Ephesus, to, to each of the churches, there is something positive that he is pointing out that he wants to encourage in that church, something that needs to be corrected, and then uh, a promise, a command and a promise. We have to wonder, you know, if Jesus appeared and he was writing a letter to us as the candlestick here in the city of Toronto, what message he would have for us today? What words of commendation and encouragement, what words of correction, what command he would give us and, and what promises he would hold out for us? The church of Ephesus was very blessed. They had been, Paul himself, as he was founding the churches, as he was going through his missionary journey, he made Ephesus his home base and spent years teaching daily in the house of Tyrannus there. Uh, and it was quite a seat both of political power, of uh, religious center, uh, before uh, uh, Rome had made it, it's basically the, the third largest city of the time, about a quarter million, and had uh, a port of some significance, and also had the Temple of Diana. We read in the Bible what, uh, what controversy there was about that, that it was a religious center because it had um, a large statue, supposedly fallen from heaven, of, of Di Diana, and there was some pretty ungodly worship there involving sexual immorality and as well as a lot of banking that happened because they thought the temple was a safe place to deposit their money and there was a lot of buying and lending based on that. So it was a center of, of importance and then along came the gospel. And we can read in Acts chapter 19 about the, this, this 
truly light shining in a dark place. Uh, it's one of the places where we see the most obvious um, confrontation with the powers of, of, of the devil that happened after Jesus' time, where it wasn't even Paul himself, but there was someone who's pretending. He, he, he pretended to, to, to use the power of God to cast out devils, evil spirits. We know there's lots who, who try to traffic in um, spirituality and, and profit in that. <clears throat> and so he was commanding devils to leave in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And he, as he did that to uh, this one, uh, there's seven of them actually, they thought there was pow power in numbers, seven brothers that went to confront a demon. And uh, they, as they confronted the demon, the demon spoke in the possessed man and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And uh, chased them out of the house naked and unclothed because they had no power. Kind of a, a lesson to us that knowing the name does not mean to know the power. Knowing the name of Jesus, knowing the name of, uh, of those in the Word of God, understanding the stories is not the same as knowing Jesus and having His power inside of us. But as the power of Paul and Jesus shone in this very dark place, a place that was a seed of political and pagan and spiritual oppressive power and, and corruption, it made a difference. Uh, it, so much so that those who were in these occultic, satanic arts made a huge bonfire. Of, I think it's like, like $55,000 worth of, of occultic materials that they burned there in the public to demonstrate that we are finished with these things that maybe brought us some power, but we know how these things work. You get power, but you become under its power. Uh, and, and enslaved by it, and, and they found the freedom that uh, was in the clear teaching of, of the gospel, that Jesus came to die in our place, as opposed to us, most religions, all religions, are, are based on our efforts and how we get into God's good books and his good graces by what we do. And here was something completely radically different that, that Jesus had already done for us, what we could not. Now, some people think they still can do on their own, and that's usually the trap that people think, I, I'm not good enough for God to meet him, or I, I can do it on my own. But I would challenge you, if, if you feel that you can be good enough on your own, try to live up to the standards that Jesus has proposed in, in even the Sermon on the Mount, the principles, try to do that by your power. It's only by God's power. But we see this, this, this light, that there was a bright, shining light in Ephesus that, that was piercing the darkness, and it was making a difference. It was, it was having a dramatic effect, and, and this church of Ephesus was the one that actually planted all the other six churches that are referred to here in, in Turkey. It was it was alive, it was growing. They were blessed with teachers. They had not only Paul for two years, but uh, Timothy, who, who Paul discipled, and 
Priscilla, Aquila, Apollos, and then John himself, the disciple, having moved there, they were blessed with incredible teachers. And they had incredibly good fruit. So what does Jesus have to say to this very blessed and special church which, which had this history? So these things saith he, Jesus, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the middle of the seven golden candlesticks, I know thy works, thy labor, thy patience. The church of Ephesus was not idle. It was active. It was busy in God's work, and it didn't just do the easy things. It didn't just speak words. It persevered. There was patience involved. How thou canst not bear them which are evil. How thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. The church of Ephesus was a discerning church. They had good, sound teaching, and so they were able to distinguish between those who were trying to say things that they were not there, that pretended to be leaders. They, they could cut through. They knew the truth. They couldn't be fooled by those who would want to take advantage of them. That's what truth does for us. As we come filled with truth, we we're unable to be manipulated and deceived and taken advantage of just uh, speaking with some friends of ours about different countries and how maybe in the past people were manipulable, but now they have access to the Internet and, and Google, and now they can't easily be manipulated. And as we, we get familiar with the truth of the Word of God, we're less uh, susceptible. And, and Jesus commends them that they not only were fooled, but they, they took a stand. It's one thing not to be personally Deceived. It's another thing to take a public stand for truth and to, um, to expose things that are, are wrong and would deceive others. I was born as patience once again. They've been, been through things. We, we know that early on uh, there was a huge um, outcry, a lot of political pressure. Uh, the silversmiths were making a lot of money making these shrines uh, to Diana. And so as they were losing money because now Christianity was exposing this whole fraud of, of, of that, you know, as you pay money and as you, um, you know, worship things, that because this was being exposed, they were losing money and they didn't like it. And so they got a huge mob together, filled the entire... There's like a 25,000-seat uh, auditorium there in Ephesus, and then they gathered the whole town together to make a big uproar. And they wanted to basically tar and feather or lynch, you know, Paul, who was there at the time. Uh, and uh, his friends prevented him from going in, and there was a big outcry for, for hours until the, the, the town uh, mayor was able to calm them down. So we know that there was a lot of political pushback, you know, from uh, you know, the forces of darkness and those who, who profited by them. And they had gone, they had persevered, they had not backed down, they had not gone underground, they had not, um, they, 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 they had persevered. 
and for Jesus' sake, they labored and have not fainted. These are all commendations. Two full verses of very amazing good. This was a strong, orthodox, active, discerning church. Sometimes you get orthodox churches that know the truth, but they don't do a lot about it. They, they may be a candlestick that's under a bushel that's that, that, that shows light to a contained environment. That light doesn't go beyond that limited circle. But this was a church that had actually labored. Nevertheless, now we come to the, the turn. I have somewhat against thee because... Thou hast left thy first love. So Jesus, this is Jesus' bride. Speaking to the church, he says the church is like his bride. His bride is faithful. His bride is doing the right things. But his bride doesn't love him. Can you tell? Can you tell if someone may be uh, serving you and doing all the right things, but they don't really like you? They don't really care? Maybe they're, it's not that they don't, they're don't, they're not, you know, don't dislike you, but the love isn't there. The initial love. He said, your first love. So it's not like the church of Ephesus didn't love God, but it wasn't like it was at first. We, we know that in a, and God has given us the husband and wife relationship, this, um, this exclusive relationship, um, because it reflects him. And reflects the, the relationship that he, he has even within himself. We have this amazing trinity where there's a God who understands love and relationships because he's had it from all eternity within himself. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he invites us to have that same intimacy and oneness. That's his vision. We read Jesus' prayer before he was crucified was that we could be one like he is one, that we could have that same sharing of all things, the same oneness that he has with the Father. And in that exclusive relation, we know that there's, we often call it the honeymoon period, where when two become one and they, they have, they're, they're just there is no withholding. There's no barriers. There's, there's no holding back. And as they give themselves completely, and there is this tremendous joy, and, and um, it, it is one of the most euphoric and, and positive experiences. <clears throat> and we call it the honeymoon period because it doesn't typically last. Often we, uh, um, we, we have ideals and we project our own ideals on another person. And they're human. They aren't our imagined ideals. 
So we become disillusioned as we find out they're actually a human being that's fallen and selfish just like we are. And, but that doesn't mean that we can't have, um, at that point, a deeper love, a love that is with a real person, that isn't based on illusions, and that is truly becoming one with someone. But as a, as a church, it's not like we're going to find that Jesus isn't who he said he is, that he's not the committed, loving, uh, uh, all-powerful God, but maybe, maybe we find that Christianity's, Christ, Christianity itself is not how we may have ideally projected it. Maybe we find it's not um, a path of roses. Maybe we find that other Christians can disappoint us and, and that um, what we thought would be you know, always a warm and supporting body has imperfect people just like us who make mistakes that are hurtful to us. But, and maybe that's the problem. As we take our eyes off of Jesus, who is never going to disappoint us, and we bring it down to the amazing people, and we put our trust in the people, and the people disappoint us. As we look through uh, church history, it is typical that there are different stages, just like there are stages in a, a romantic relationship. There can be stages in, in a church movement where it begins, again, with this response to the incredible truth and a fresh uh, personal engagement with who God is. Typically, maybe as people you know, begin to pray and, and to humble themselves and to repent and, and to, to be willing to give up all, because that's what you need to have a real marriage relationship that is has that first love is to, to hold nothing back. <clears throat> and as we do that with God, God is free to work. We saw that, you know, 1850s and freely. We've seen that in other periods in time where God has really moved in his people. But when our focus is off of that, off of Jesus himself, into like, wow, isn't this wonderful? This, this is growing. There's other people who are also attracted to this good thing. And well, we need to come up with regulations and, and rules and, and ways to set norms. And uh, when we, our focus is on maybe the organization rather than the organism, that it starts to get rigid. And we, as we focus on those rules, um, because Ephesus seems to be a very, they had the right rules. There was nothing wrong with their rules. They had the right discernment. That wasn't the problem. They knew the truth. That was good. And Jesus commends them for that. <clears throat> 
thinking of the, the passage that says that the letter killeth and the spirit maketh us alive. I've been thinking about that for, God's been laying on my heart for <clears throat> some months as I see that, like I said, in myself, those around me, the letter killeth, the spirit makes alive. When we reduce things to, to the letter, it's no longer alive. Going back to romantic relationships, I think I heard someone, you know, they knew that, uh, they knew, you know, their previous generation had failed in, in, in having successful marriage and they were going to avoid it. They, they were going to make sure they weren't going to go through this, this problem, so they were going to come up with a contract. And they were going to have this prenuptial agreement, and if the other person would sign this contract, then they were guaranteed to avoid the pitfalls that the previous generation went through. Do you think that's going to work? Do you think we can avoid via written contract or or make ensure using a written contract with our you know, proposed uh, spouse that we're going to have a successful marriage. Is that going to solve it? I mean, you, you can make it 50, 100, 300 pages long, you know, maybe even more. Do you think you can cover everything in that written agreement that's going to ensure that you have a successful marriage. Why not? Because love, love is not something that can be codified, legislated, legalistically specified. We can come up with some rules of conduct, but, but the motivation of the heart is what makes that marriage relationship alive, is does this person really love me? Are they really committed? Do they care? Do you feel that heart response? Or are they going through the motions because they know that this is what's required? There's a big difference, a big difference. And Jesus can tell. If you can tell, if you can tell that someone is just going through the motions in their relationship with you, you don't think Jesus can tell if we're going through the motions with him? If we are truly motivated by this desire to, to know him, to share all with him, to be one with him, or do we say, okay, God, Jesus, what do you need? You know, let's write it down and I'll try to get it all done, right? And then I'm done and I can go pursue my own agenda. That's kind of, we see Jesus had a real problem. The people he had the biggest problem with when he was alive on this earth and was walking here were not the people that were lost and captives in sin and all kinds of things that they were, you know, he, he saw them and was sorry for them and wanted to rescue them. And they typically saw their need. My life is out of control. It's a mess. I feel ashamed. I feel dirty. Save me. 
But there were a group of people that didn't think they needed saving, and they were the ones who, who were very legalistically were following the law, but in a legal sense. And, and, and Jesus, many of his stories, there's the point that we see at the surface, and then there's, you know, afterwards when we think about it, right? So we know there's the story of the prodigal son where this, the, the wasteful son wastes his father's generosity and comes back broken and dirty, and the father accepts him anyways. And we see the love of God as he takes us back. But then there's the older brother, the one who stayed at home but never got the heart of the father, never understood grace. And that was really who Jesus was talking to as, as these Pharisees are saying, why are you eating and drinking with sinners? You're, 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 you're polluting yourself. You can't be good and holy. And he would say, no, no, this is who you are. You're like this older brother. You're missing the point of God's goodness and, and his wanting to rejoice over those who've been found as opposed to, to um, thinking yourself better, deserving None of us deserve a place at the Father's table, but it is his goodness. And then there's the story that there was a lawyer, one who was good at writing these technical documents. And if you've ever had a lawyer, you know, I've had to have one when I buy a house. And they think of all the twisted ways that someone might be able to weasel their way and cheat you somehow and try to defend you against that. And it's a very twisted way of thinking because you've got to play all these mind games. And so the lawyer, he comes to Jesus and he says, what are the greatest commandments? You know, if we can reduce it, you know, we all like to reduce our commitments, don't we? How thick a document we're signing. And Jesus reduced it for him. He reduced it down to two statements. On this hangs all the law and the prophets. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And now sometimes we can get away with loving God. We... He's not here, so we, but, but loving our neighbor, it's kind of a little more visible. So he thought, I, I need to, the Bible actually says, he willing to justify himself. He was being a lawyer. Who is my neighbor? He wanted to, he wanted to put bounds on what God was really asking of him. Just like we, these written things, the problem is they, they put bounds and they miss the heart that God is looking for, the heart, not the track record, not, you know, what you've, all you've done, but where is your heart? Do you really love me? And so Jesus told a story, and a story you're familiar with of, of the man who, who went and fell, was uh, jumped by robbers on this dangerous village uh, road, and two very religious men walked past, we all know the story about the third man. The third man, even though he's a despised ethnic nationality that, you know, his worship was not informed and, 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 and uh, he, was, he was not a pure Jew, but yet he acted and was compassionate and took him in and carried him on his donkey and, and paid for him. And, 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 you know, he showed the generosity, right? The good Samaritan, we call him. But there's the other two that we sometimes gloss over, the ones that were good Jews, religious Jews, but didn't want to pollute themselves because they knew it would interfere uh, with uh, being in the temple, so they walked on the other side. 
I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, go back to that initial response to the overwhelming love of God that he would leave heaven and earth, that he would come down and leave his majesty and infiniteness and become this finite baby and be subject to poverty and rejection And he would express to you the image of God and then would take on my sin, your sin. All the things that we're too ashamed to even think of, the the doors we lock and we hope no one ever discovers that we've thought or done. And he took that on him. And he took it to the cross and he bore it there and he hung in agony, rejected not only by us, despised and rejected as we heard them sing last night in the Messiah, but even rejected by God. As God himself turned his back on, 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 on the pollution that Jesus was carrying because of me. And when, when we recognize that he's offering us this freedom, as he rose from the dead, showing that that was accepted, and you and I can walk free from not only the penalty of the past, not only the, the, the need to pay for our sins, but the power of that sin. Not only the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. As he rose from the dead, you and I can walk free from the things that once enslaved us. That's why all the self-help and all the uh, psychological uh, uh, you know, ideas and, and, and sophistication can never get us to overcome our human nature, but the power of Christ can, and we, the power of sin is broken. And as we come to the Lord in repentance and we experience his undeserved goodness, I, you know, going back to the romantic relationship, I remember how, how I was undeserved of my wife. I didn't deserve being given a gift of, of, of God's daughter to cherish and to, to love me. I didn't deserve that. I couldn't deserve that. How much less could I deserve the love of God? How unworthy and, and overwhelming and um, you, you, we lack words to describe the magnitude of God's undeserved grace. We call it that, that he takes the worst and gives the best as he exchanges that, as he personally pays the highest price and demonstrates the commitment. And as I respond to that, in that overwhelming goodness, there is nothing but love and gratitude. And if I keep my eyes on that and I don't look at the disappointments in life that, well, you know, why hasn't God done this for me? God in his love has very good reasons. We may not understand now, but we will understand how it's better for us. And why You know, has this person done this and that person done this? Our disappointments with the circumstances of people, that's missing the point of Jesus. 
in our love response to God's love. We love him because he first loved us. And as we keep our eyes on that, we will not become a church that looks good on the outside, that is doing the right things, but is missing the heart of God on the inside. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. Fallen? They were a good church. They were discerning and active, but they had in the eyes of Jesus, fallen because the motivation of their heart was no longer about responding in love to Jesus. Maybe it was about doing the right thing, being the right person, maybe about what other people thought about them, maybe about just feeling good about their own self-effort. I don't know what it was, but it was no longer responding to loving God because he first loved us. Remember from whence thou art fallen and repent. Repent. What does that mean? We acknowledge. We acknowledge how we have hurt God. First, as we've rejected him, as we have not appreciated what he has done for us. We repent as that rejection has had consequences and put pain on God and others that he has loved. We acknowledge, we own it, we stop running and hiding from the truth because that's what it is. When we kind of just want to push it under the carpet, under the bed, in the law closet, and we don't deal with truth. And God says, no, come. I already know. I know what you're feeling bad about. And there is a way to move forward that will deal with it so you no longer have to be hiding and running down as, as God's love with a poem says, as the hounds of heaven that chase you through the arches of time. You no longer have to run from God's love. You can allow it, but it requires honesty. It requires humility. It requires facing what we've done wrong. And as we repent, as we turn, it will manifest itself in a new way of working. Now we're saying, well, what's wrong with Ephesus was doing the right things to begin with? But it's different when it's motivated by love. It is a completely new work. God and all these people that have the Spirit of God in them that really, you can tell, you are self-aware and conscious. You know if someone loves you. Do the first works motivated by love or else I will come to thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou repent. God is offering hope. He's offering a way forward. But there, are, there is a window. It's not an unlimited offer. There re requires a response within the right time. This is a message to all those of us believers who have, who, who have left our first love to repent and not to take um, confidence in the past, 
Ephesus had a glorious past. Look, we're the church that Paul founded. Paul spent more time in this church than anywhere else. We have John the Apostle, the last living apostle, was living here. We have everything to be boast of. We've had Satan being exposed. We've had bonfires of occultic materials. We've defeated mobs of, of, of angry pagans. This is the place where victory has happened. But that was then, and this is now. We can't look to our past. We have those who have stood for the faith, who have suffered in prison for the, the sake of, of God's word, those who have stood faithful over time and held up God's word though they were mocked and persecuted and executed. Yes, that may be true, but this is now. And God sees our heart now. And we can read in Ezekiel 33, he says, you know, you may have spent decades doing the right thing, but if you turn and do wickedness, God holds you account for what your heart is now. And you may have spent decades doing wickedness. And if you turn to God now, God will forgive and will restore. Where is your heart now? That is the hope. The hope is that God will allow, does allow you turns. He allows you to repent. He allows you to come to him now in humility while it is the day of grace, not indefinitely. There is an or else. There is an except you repent. But there is a way. And I want to encourage those who may not know God yet. These same principles apply that God God is not excluding you from his presence because of your past, because of what you've done. That is the good news, that, that the, the separation between the Holy of Holies and, and people has been ripped from the top to the bottom. God has made access to him through Jesus Christ. And it's through the same gateway, the same entrance of repentance and humbling ourselves and facing the truth and, and turning to God that you can have that first love and respond to him. Verse 6, he addresses that, uh, he says, This thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Notice that he didn't say that you hated the Nicolaitans. Because it's not about hating people. It was their deeds. It was their teachings. We can see from the context a, a few verses down that this was a toleration of immorality, of, uh, of lowering of standards, of, uh, of, um, of uh, 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 compromising with uh, paganism and idolatry. In our, in our day, we can see it is kind of just letting go the standards of truth to we see the shifting morals as we've gone to a relative morality and we see where that goes and what it accepts and we need to love the people that are captive by it people that are facing suicide and depression at unprecedented levels and we hate the lies that are hurting them because we love the people. And we can't compromise, as, you know, even I think this past few weeks, you know, popular Christian singers, 
you know, don't want to take a stand on, you know, is, does the Bible teach that homosexuality is wrong? Because that's unpopular. That will lose a lot of, of um, you, will get, you will earn the uh, wrath uh, of today's culture. But we need to love everyone. And because we love them, we need to warn them about the things that are hurting them. It's not that, oh, you know, those people, you know, God hates them especially. It's that this hurts them especially, and they need to be rescued. It's not about fitting in till there is no, no distinguishing, like, what's the point? There's not that you don't offer anything because in the desire not to offend, you no longer hold to any of the power and, the, and you no longer offer hope and deliverance. We need to stand for truth in love and motivated by a love response to Jesus. He that hath an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the church. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. In the beginning, there was a paradise. It was Adam and Eve, and there were two trees. There was one that, that there in the middle that were special. There was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And as they chose, they wanted to experience for themselves to not, it wasn't good enough that God told them this is going to hurt you and this is evil. They wanted to experience it. And boy, have we experienced as humanity the knowledge of good and evil. And since that day, we've known great good and we've known great evil in the heart of man. But there is a tree of life a tree that will give us that eternal relationship in purity with God, where there will be no more death or dying or sadden or, de or, or departure, division. We have to overcome. We have to endure. These people were good. They had persevered in the outward form. But he was challenging them, and it was critical. It was a life or death issue. Are they going to persevere in their motivation by being motivated by the love of Jesus? If not, it's not me. It's not what I'm saying. This is the Bible saying, except you repent. And so the warning is for us. We need to persevere in our love relationship with the Lord Jesus and being motivated by that. And if we do, we will have that eternal life in paradise. This is our, our hope. And that will begin now as because it is in that relationship and presence of God now that the overcoming power and the joy and the abundance of life that he promises begins now and extends to eternity. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. The letter killeth, but the spirit maketh alive.
There is a way that seemeth right to man, but the end thereof is death, the Old Testament says. It seems that every, many philosophies, almost all without the exception of Christianity, is about our efforts to become wiser, more enlightened, self-disciplined, um, selfless, and, and through these efforts, we achieve a higher status. But in the process, we become proud. We become self-reliant. We become rigid and lifeless. And God offers us a better way, a living way, through his son. As we have we read here to, together that we recognize that our strength is unstable, that none to do thy work are able unless thou strengthen mightily. So break the stubborn will that humbled we may still thy kingdom gain. Through shame would we here follow thee and honor, and honor count it thus to be. As we humble ourselves, recognize our own inability, God, as he raised the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, can raise us up. Raise us up to have the power to live what we cannot do ourselves. To love. To love consistently because he is loving through us. It's not in us, but God wants to work through us, and that is our privilege to be vessels of his love. May we always depend and keep our focus on him, the source of that love. With that, we conclude this morning's message.